Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome to the Serial Killer Podcast, the podcast dedicated to serial killers, who they were, what they did, and how. Sadism, Sadistic Personality Disorder, Sexual Sadism Disorder. Medical professionals have used many phrases to describe someone who enjoys inflicting pain upon other human beings. The current terminology refers to the recurrent and intense sexual arousal from the physical or psychological suffering of another person, as manifested by fantasies, urges, or behaviors. It is classified as one of the so-named paraphilias, called an algolagnic disorder. The formal diagnosis of sexual sadism disorder would apply if the individual has acted on these urges with a non-consenting person or if the urge cause significant distress to the victim. The term sadism derives from the French author Donatien Alphonse-François Marquis de Sade. He lived a scandalous libertine existence and repeatedly procured young prostitutes as well as employees of both sexes in his castle in Lacoste. He was also accused of blasphemy, a serious offence at the time. His behaviour also included an affair with his wife's sister, Anne Prosper, who had come to live at his castle. Beginning in 1763, de Sade lived mainly in or near Paris, Several prostitutes there complained about mistreatment by him, and he was put under surveillance by the police, who made detailed reports of his activities. 
After several short imprisonments, which included a brief incarceration in the Chateau de Saumur, which at the time was a prison, he was exiled to his chateau at Lacoste in 1768. The first major scandal occurred on Easter Sunday in 1768, in which Sad procured the services of a woman, Rose Keller, a widow beggar who approached him for alms. He told her she could make money by working for him. She understood her work to be that of a housekeeper. At his chateau at Arquel, Sad ripped her clothes off, threw her on a divan and tied her by the four limbs, face down, so that she could not see behind her. Then he whipped her. Keller testified that he made various incisions on her body into which he poured hot wax, although investigators found no broken skin on Keller, and Sud explained that he had applied ointment to her after the whipping. Keller finally escaped by climbing out of a second-floor window and running away. In 1774, the Sud trapped six children, including one boy, in his chateau for six weeks, during which time he subjected them to sexual abuse, which his wife allowed. While imprisoned at the famous prison, the Bastille, Desad wrote his magnum opus, The 120 Days of Sodom. The novel tells the story of four wealthy male libertines who resolve to experience the ultimate sexual gratification in orgies. To do this, they seal themselves away for four months in an inaccessible castle in the heart of the Black Forest, with a harem of 36 victims, mostly male and female teenagers, and engage four female brothel keepers to tell the stories of their lives and adventures. These women's narratives form an inspiration for the sexual abuse and torture of the victims, which gradually mounts in intensity and ends in their slaughter. And so it is. In tonight's episode, I will present to you, dear listener, a paragon of sadism in the modern world. A serial killer whose evil and depravity goes beyond even the darkest recesses in the mind of the Marquis de Sade. He raped, tortured, and murdered at least 28 young men and boys, perhaps as many as 40. At the time of his arrest, only Dr. Death himself, H. H. Holmes, rivaled his body count. I am, of course, talking about none other than the candy man himself, Dean Coral. Would you, dear listener, like to hear more from your humble hosts, other than just the weekly serial killer exposés? If so, I have the solution for you. The $10 Plus Club is growing, and I have provided its fine members to four 100% exclusive bonus content. The bonus content now includes a brand new expose into the Norwegian black metal artist, murderer, 
and Satanist Vargvikenes. A detailed look into the history of the death penalty around the world? A video review of the excellent film Extremely Wicked, Shockingly Evil and Vile? And an American radio station interviewing yours truly. So, if you want to join the exclusive ranks of the TSK $10 Plus Club, go to patreon.com slash the serial killer podcast and donate ten dollars or more now. Dean Arnold Korn was born in Waynesdale, Indiana, on Christmas Day, the 25th of December, 1939, to over-affectionate mother Mary and Arnold, a father who did not like children. Family life at the beginning was not a happy one for Dean and his brother Stanley, with their parents constantly arguing. Arnold Korn was a strict disciplinarian, and the boys were always being punished, both mentally and physically. In the 1940s, corporal punishment was common and thought to be moral in regards to raising children. However, as with other known serial killers, Dean's father went beyond a simple slap or spanking. He punched his boys in the face, in the stomach, and whipped them bloody with his belt. Arnold and Mary eventually divorced in 1946, which at the time was much rarer than today. The divorce rate in the 1940s was around 29%. Today it is higher than 50%. The divorce probably hit Dean very hard. Even though his father did cause him a lot of pain, he was the only stable male role model he knew. Arnold Korl didn't stay around to keep in touch with his family after the divorce, choosing to instead join the U.S. Army. However, Mary wasn't one to simply accept being left behind, and she found life without a husband so sad she bought a horse trailer and moved to Tennessee to be closer to the base where Arnold was posted. There the couple briefly got together again. Dean and Stanley were left with an elderly couple most of the time while Mary went looking for work. The arguments between the Corals continued. The violence returned, and again they separated. Being uprooted from a stable family home to live in a trailer, seeing his parents divorce, then join again, then divorcing again, all combined with copious amounts of anger, fighting and violence, probably didn't do Dean any favors developmentally. The two Coral boys were at different poles on the personality scale. Stanley was friendly and outgoing, always playing with the other children from the neighborhood or school, whereas Dean was always a loner, preferring to stay inside and away from the other children. 
1950, Mary and Arnold tried again to reconcile, but it did not work, and so they eventually gave up on the relationship, and in 1950, Mary, with the two boys, left Tennessee for Houston. Around the same time, Dean was diagnosed with a congenital heart ailment after a bout of rheumatic fever and was told that he should avoid sports where possible. But Dean, not being a sporting type, actually found this to be good news. In 1950, Dean was 11 years old, and those of my senior listeners will probably remember how being a kid in the 1950s was like in America. If you were a boy, you were expected to participate in sports, for example football and baseball. It was also considered very normal for boys to rough and tumble, to fight, come home with cuts, scrapes, and the occasional black eye. Dean, however, was effeminate, clean, slight of build, and very introverted. He didn't participate in any community sports, and was in all likelihood relentlessly bullied for the entirety of his early school years. In 1953, Mary remarried. Her new husband was travelling clock salesman Jake West. Soon after the marriage, the couple had a daughter. With both his parents working, Dean was extremely protective of his younger sibling, and always watched out for her and trying to keep her out of trouble. He did not like that his brother was always outgoing and active, but he was especially fond of his new little sister. Although Dean didn't play football or baseball, he did find himself a hobby in scuba diving, but had to give it up after fainting one day while diving, a symptom of his heart defect. At school he enjoyed music and was a keen trombone player. Teachers remembered him as a quiet and polite student. After a suggestion from a candy salesman, Mary set herself up with a little candy shop to help support the family. Dean was a runner for the candy shop, which had its humble beginnings in the garage of the family home. Dean often found himself exhausted for running orders to people in town, but he never complained. After high school graduation, Dean moved back to Indiana to help look after his stepfather Jake's elderly mother, while the rest of the family moved to Houston. Once his step-grandmother died, he moved back to Houston, where he decided to get a job with the Houston Lighting and Power Company during the day. At night, he figured he could help the family make candy. His drive to succeed impressed many of the town's young women, but Dean failed to notice. In high school, Dean had reportedly dated two girls, and being a devout Baptist, the very idea of homosexuality was so taboo, Dean didn't understand what his deep, dark fantasies really were. Men and young boys was a constant fixture in his increasing deviant late-night fantasies, and from a young age, Dean knew something was not right. 
The year was 1964. John F. Kennedy had been assassinated the year before, and the Vietnam War was starting to explode. The U.S. still had a draft back then, and in 1964, Dean was drafted into the U.S. Army. He went through basic training at Fort Polk and radio repair school at Fort Benning before his permanent assignment to Fort Hood, Texas. Until joining the army, Dean had spent most of his time with his family. He had few male friends, and although he secretly had fantasies, there were nothing compared to the urges he experienced finding himself in company with literally thousands of handsome, athletic young men in the army. Dean found himself desiring after fellow officers he shared his quarters with. Dean finally realized he was gay. Until then, Dean had known something about life was wrong. But until his realization about his homosexuality, he had been unsure about what had been missing. We know little about Dean's activities in the army, although his official army record is stellar, and he was given an honorable discharge to care for the family candy business after only eleven months. Returning home from the army, Dean found his mother and stepfather arguing and fighting. The Wests had begun to argue over the business. Jake, Dean's stepfather, saw Mary as a rival and soon threw her out. Mary, once again, took the children and began running her own lolly shop. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all have our burdens to bear, dear listener. And as a man, I was and am often told to suck it up, keep calm, and carry on. Normally good advice in many situations. But never talking about what bothers you is not healthy. Therapy is great to get things off your chest, to vent, and best of all, to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Everyone need someone to talk to, even psychopaths, even your humble host. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Serial Killer today 
to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp. H-E-L-P dot com slash serial killer. At this point, Dean stood 5 feet 11 inches tall and weighed 190 pounds. His stint in the army had shaped him from a skinny kid to a masculine and handsome young man. Fresh from army life, he didn't wish to continue staying at home. Instead, he found himself an apartment near his mother and soon started hanging out with teenage boys from the neighborhood. It was easy to get boys to come to his apartment. Dean always had piles of candy around, and most of the kids simply couldn't resist. Dean still worked as much as he could for his mother in the candy shop. One day, one of the other male workers met a pass at Dean. He had his mother sack the boy. Dean's reaction to the solicitation was one of mortal horror. Yet at the same time, other boys would not want to be in the same room alone with Dean. This confused others about his sexual nature. Once again, probably against Dean's wishes, his mother decided to marry. This time her husband was a seaman, and soon Mary found flaws in his character. She found him dull company, and quite stupid. Yet the marriage survived two divorces until finally, on the advice of a psychic, Mary left the marriage and Houston and moved to Dallas. Dean Corl decided to stay in Houston. He liked it there, and finally found the freedom away from his protective mother to do as he pleased. He was finally, after so many years, under his mother's all-encompassing shadow, all grown up. Dean's first attraction to the younger boys was one of an older protective brother. At first, he would never say anything or do anything overtly sexual. He just preferred the company of the teen boys who hung around his apartment. But lurking beneath, the kind exterior was fantasies. Dark fantasies that during long years of being suppressed had developed increasingly deviant and extremely violent characteristics. When Coral was 27 years old, he met for the first time 12-year-old David Brooks. At the time, David was a slender, handsome boy with dark hair. He, as the other kids in the neighborhood, loved candy, and he too had experienced being marginalized and bullied by other boys. Dean was the first male he met who didn't mock him for his glasses, and he looked up to the strapping and successful Dean Coral. So much so that he enthusiastically agreed when Dean offered him money in exchange for mutual masturbation and oral sex. Brooks enjoyed the older man's company and looked up to him as a big brother, someone to ask for guidance and for help through the tough and tumultuous teenage years. Soon David became completely emotionally dependent on Dean and spent most of his time with him rather than at home. It went so far 
that Brooks actually moved in with Coral for a period of time. Dean still worked at the lighting company, and soon hired a storage shed to keep his few possessions in that were not needed in his tiny apartment. On Christmas Day, 1969, Dean Coral turned 30. It was a turning point in his life. He became morose and depressed. He lost his thrill for life and became further introverted. But David Brooks was often around and tried to cheer Coral up. Often it would end with Coral paying Brooks five dollars for oral sex. But oral sex from the various teenage boys was simply not enough for Dean Coral anymore. His fantasies had started to take over his every waking hour, spilling over into real life. He wanted to penetrate. He wanted to inflict pain, and he wanted to kill. And so it was that by Christmas 1970, Dean Coral became a murderer. University of Texas student Jeffrey Conan left the campus and began to hitchhike home to Houston. 21-year-old Jeffrey was an all-American handsome 18-year-old man and was last seen on the 25th of September, 1970, trying to get another lift. Instead of getting a lift to where he was going, he was picked up by Coral, who took him to his apartment at 3300 Yorktown. Once there, the young man was bound by his hands and feet and gagged. Jeffrey was by then completely under Coral's control, and for the first time in his life, Coral felt the rush of utter domination. Also, he would finally be able to take the step from simple masturbation and oral sex to full anal penetration. Without lube causing bleeding and horrifying pain, Coral sodomized Jeffrey before slowly strangling him to death with his bare hands using a piece of cloth that was gagged in Jeffrey's mouth. Once dead, the body posed no interest to Coral, was put in his trunk and, as the first of many, dumped it on the high island beach. When the body was later discovered, it was laying under a large boulder, covered in a layer of lime, wrapped in plastic, naked, and bound hand and foot. Being such a wayward area for down-and-out teens, Coral had his pick of victims. He found that a lot of them were willing to come over for a party. The parties usually included glue and paint sniffing, pot smoking and pill popping. Some of the boys would, just as Brooks, allow Coral to perform oral sex on them for five dollars. Many of the boys Coral chose were usually in trouble or runaways. When they went missing, no one really noticed at first. However, Coral was not happy with only oral sex. He wanted penetration. He wanted to perform sodomy on his victims. He wanted total domination and the murder of Conan 
and lit a hunger in him that by now raged like a wildfire. Around the time of Conan's murder, David Brooks interrupted Coral in the act of assaulting two teenage boys whom he'd strapped to his plywood torture board. The torture board was just that, a plywood board with holes drilled into it where victims' hands and feet could be secured. Once secured, Coral would take his time torturing his victims using a variety of tools. When Brooks entered the apartment, Coral was fully erect and in the process of torturing both young boys. He had a manic look on his face. But instead of running straight back out to call the authorities, Brooks stayed put. Dean grinned at this and promised Brooks a car in return for his silence. Brooks accepted the offer, and Coral bought him a green Chevrolet Corvette. Brooks was later told by Coral that the two youths had been murdered, and that Coral had an offer for him. It was getting increasingly difficult for Coral to lure boys back to his apartment, and he needed somebody to procure fresh meat. Thus, Dean offered $200 for any boy Brooks could lure to Coral's apartment. James Glass was a dark-haired, 14-year-old boy who liked to wear hippie necklaces and had a sweet smile and blue eyes. Danny Michael Yates was a friend of his. He was of somewhat darker complexion with brown hair and brown eyes. Judging from family photos, he was a happy and playful 14-year-old. On the 15th of December, 1970, David Brooks lured the two 14-year-old boys away from a religious rally held near Houston Heights to Coral's Yorktown apartment. Glass was an acquaintance of Brooks who, at Brooks' behest, had previously visited Coral's apartment. Once inside Coral's apartment, one or two of the boys were probably tricked into putting on handcuffs. In a similar way as John Wayne Gacy did, Coral and Brooks would show their victims a set of handcuffs. They would then put on the handcuffs and pretend to be able to work their way free. Once out of the handcuffs, they would challenge their guests to repeat the feat. And the boy would have put on the cuffs, and after a brief amount of time realizing there was no way out of them, both John Wayne Gacy and Coral would taunt the boy by saying the trick, laying having the key in the first place. Gacy and Coral were in many ways similar. They both had successful local businesses, were viewed favorably by their neighbors and community, and both liked to rape and murder dozens of young boys. However, where Gacy would refrain from straight-up hardcore torture, opting instead for brutal rape and various forms of murder, Coral's goal was not just the sex and murder. His thrill came from pure sadism. He wanted to cause as much horrifying pain as possible to his victims, as well as brutally rape them before he eventually murdered them. 
Both 14-year-olds were bound to the aforementioned plywood torture board once Coral and Brooks had tied them up. The torture board could be used both laying down and standing upright. When laying down, it was easy to rape the victim laying on it, but when it was standing up, secured in the floor and the roof, Coral could tie one victim on each side of the board. This way he could also inflict torture without having to kneel or bend down to the floor. This is what was the case with Glass and Yates. Both youths were tied to opposite sides of Coral's torture board and subsequently anally raped, tortured in ways I'll get back to later in later episodes, and strangled to death before being buried in a boatshed Coral had rented on the 17th of November. Six weeks after the double murder of Glass and Yates, on the 30th of January 1971, Brooks and Coral encountered two teenage brothers named Donald and Jerry Waldrop walking to a bowling alley. Both boys were enticed into Coral's van and were driven to an apartment that Coral had moved into at 3200 Mangum Road, where they were raped, tortured, and strangled before Brooks and Coral buried them in the boatshed. Between March and May of 1971, Coral killed three more boys between the ages of just 13 and 16. As with the Waldrop brothers, all lived in Houston Heights. Two of these victims, David Hillegist and Mally Winkle, were abducted and killed together on the afternoon of the 29th of May 1971. As had been the case with parents of other victims of Coral, both sets of parents launched a frantic search for their sons. One of the youths, who voluntarily offered to distribute posters the parents had printed, offering a reward for information leading to the boy's whereabouts, was a 15-year-old lifelong friend of Hillegist. The youth pinned the posters around the hates and attempted to reassure Hillegist's mother that there may be an innocent explanation for the boy's absence. The name of Hillegist's friend was none other than Elmer Wayne Henley, a young man whose excesses in cohort with Coral we will cover in the coming episodes. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. And so ends part one in the saga of The Candyman, Dean Coral. Next week, I will give you part two. So, as they say in the land of radio, stay tuned. This podcast would not be possible 
if it had not been for my dear patrons who pledge their hard-earned money every month. There are especially a few of those patrons I would like to thank in person. These patrons are my 18 most loyal patrons. They have contributed for at least the last 34 episodes, and their names are Maud, Amber, Anne, Christina, Claudette, Cody, Evan, Jennifer, Lisa, Lisbeth, Mark, Mickey, Philip, PJ, Russell, Sam, Sarah, and Troy. You really helped produce this show and you have my deepest gratitude. Thank you. If you wish to join this exclusive club of TSK producers, go to theserialkillerpodcast.com slash donate and pledge $15 or more to have your name read live on this show. Thank you, good night, and good luck.